Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a rheumatologist at Room Now, and I think you're going to have a really great month when we're talking about rheumatoid arthritis. I have the privilege of debating Dr. Elvin Wells. I know Elvin and I know he's really persuasive and I might have the underdog part of the debate, but I will convince you to change your opinion, even if you don't change your prescribing. So our rheumatoid arthritis debate is triple therapy or not. So Elvin will debate, be debating uh, that triple therapy should not be done. And let's talk about why it should be. And then I'll tell you what I think he's going to say. So first of all, triple versus not. We know in every single randomized controlled trial that combination therapy and high-risk rheumatoid arthritis, active disease, seropositive, many swollen joints and elevated inflammatory marker erosions. If you have a few of those things, then in every single RCT, combinations with TNFs, combination therapy uh, with other drug classes, looking at combination of uh, conventional synthetic DMARDs. So the RACAT trial, the Odell trials, the COBRA trial, COBRA light, uh, Avant, Avant light, uh, uh, Carrera or CARE-RA, CARE-RA light. In every single one of those studies, you will get 70% of patients with a deep response if you use combination therapy. 70% is not an A plus on a report card, but you will fail on a report card if you do methotrexate monotherapy. Why do I say that? In every one of those trials, only 30% get a deep response or go to a low disease activity in the high-risk patients on methotrexate monotherapy. So why on earth would guidelines such as the American College of Rheumatology, although I respect their guidelines, and UGAR guidelines, which I was part of, why are they saying monotherapy? I think there's a caveat. They're saying monotherapy with methotrexate as an anchor drug, but actually ULAR is saying combination therapy. And their combination is actually with glucocorticoids. Now that's a different debate and I'm not going to talk about that here, but because they realize two drugs are better than one. Let's take a deeper dive into the non-RCT data. So we know from our Canadian CATCH cohort, the early rheumatoid arthritis cohort, that triple therapy gave a faster and deeper response than methotrexate monotherapy and even then double therapy. But double therapy or triple were always better than monotherapy. And that's true whether you were looking at methotrexate oral, optimal dosing from the beginning, or even subcutaneous optimal dosing from the beginning. So what is the upside and the downside? Tolerability is good. A lot of people say I don't do triple therapy because it's not tolerated. I can tell you that I have one of the least dropouts of our catch cohort at my site and that we use 70 to 90% of patients start on triple therapy. Some are allergic, some don't have drug reimbursement, some would prefer not to, but almost all of them do. Um, also, the cost, if we want to move on to advanced therapies, we have less people moving on by a UK study, also looking at our catch cohort in Canada, if they're starting in combination therapy. 
Okay, so wait a sec now. What is Dr. Wells going to convince you of? So there is another side of the debate. So he is following guidelines when he says start on methotrexate monotherapy, and you can quickly add or switch to something else, often adding. But again, one third of people only at most going into a deep response with methotrexate monotherapy and poor prognosis RA is not satisfactory. The other thing is every single study that looks at it says that the best results of durability of response, still having a patient on drugs that you started at the beginning, are if you get a fast and deep remission. And as I said, all the RCTs say two or three drugs are better than one. The other thing is, even in the best case scenario, in early rheumatoid arthritis in our catch Canadian cohort, we get two-thirds of patients into a deep CDI remission, which is pretty good. But two years later, half of them are out of that deep remission, which isn't so good. And if we look at established RA, it's even worse. So if we want to treat to a low disease activity and we want our patients to have the best results ever, then don't ignore Dr. Wells, but take his data with a grain of salt and maybe add two more shakes to get to triple therapy. With that, I thank you for listening. Hello, I'm Alvin Wells. I'm a board certified rheumatologist. I'm the director of the uh, Aurora Rheumatology Department uh, in uh, Franklin, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of, of Milwaukee. Okay, you've heard Dr. Pope's side of the story about the use of triple therapy in treating patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm gonna give you another side of the coin. Let me first take you back to 1988 because that indeed is when methotrexate was first approved. Think about that, that's 35 years ago. And now we're moving forward to other data, other drugs that we have in the development, the number of clinical trials. And when everybody thinks about the clinical trials, you see stuff that's published in papers, but you think about the time and effort involved. I do clinical trials in my practice here, but it's not just my time, it's the patient's time and efforts. Many people commit to these trials because they move the, the data forward. Triple drugs, you think about those, yes, they've been out there. And do I use these? Yes, in a minority of patients, only when they failed everything else. Think about it. I have 17 different drugs I can use now. Somebody has rheumatoid arthritis that's been seen by a board-certified rheumatologist. You also want to think about the pill burden. Somebody's got to take at least 16 pills a day. And I'm in a state where, hey, indeed, if I have a young lady of childbearing age between 16 and 45 years old, if I put her on one of these drugs, she can have a, a, a medical miscarriage by me. And that could be uh, something that's uh, an offense uh, in this state as that as well. So again, all the drugs, pill burden is something to consider about. Here's a second fact. Now in 2023, we have seven biosimilars out there for TNF drugs. Uh, the TNF drugs, when they were first approved in 1998, 10 years after methotrexate, they made a huge advance. And now we bring newer drugs to the market that's gonna make it cheaper and easier for our patients to afford. Like many other countries where they use these biologic drugs sooner rather than later, because they know that down the road, even on methotrexate and triple drug therapy, patients still can progress. That if you look at the ACR scores, there's a uh, uh, what we call a uh, incongruence between them. The ACR scores might be uh, uh, better, but also you notice now that their joints gonna uh, actually in, in get worsened. So you know there's a disconnect in between that. The third point I want to make, so who gets which drugs? In the US now, we're dealing with these huge disparities in treating people with rheumatoid arthritis. So who starts on methotrexate? Who starts on sulfasalazine and hydroxychloroquine? Or who starts on a biosimilar drug? And we know that based on what the provider looks like, 
what that patient walks out the door is going to be different. And everybody thinks the disparity is just poor black and brown people know. In the U.S., blacks only represent 13 percent of the population, according to the 2020 census. So if you practice in states like um, Arizona, West Virginia, or Kentucky, you're going to see a lot of poor white people with rheumatoid arthritis whose disease is being sub, uh, under, not under control because they're getting what we call the substandard therapy. Now, some of my other colleagues say, well, yeah, you just need to go to a, a self, subcutaneous uh, methotrexate. You need to go to the right dose of that. But even on those drugs, we know the patients still get some disease progression. And unlike, you know, like we do in the clinical trials, we x-ray these joints every year that these patients can progress year after year. This is a chronic disease where patients indeed need to be treated for long term. And that's the thing we think about. So think about the disparities. Now, some of my colleagues talk about the cost. Oh, yeah, the cost of these biologic drugs are so uh, expensive. I say, guys, what are you talking about? I don't care about the cost of these drugs. I say it's the worth of these drugs. And one of the reasons we see that patients with rheumatoid arthritis are not being treated with more advanced therapy because people are worried about the cost. Here's a fact. Many of my colleagues won't tell you that when you think about what these drugs cost the patient out of pocket, that the triple drugs like methotrexate and sulfasalazine, they cost more than a biologic drug. Think about that. The biologic drugs, the companies have copay cards. Patients get, um, my patients get these biologic drugs for 5 or $10 and some patients get them for free. Methotrexate alone can cost $25 to $50. And I add two other drugs on top of that. That can be $100 a month out of pocket. So you talk about the cost of these drugs, the cost of these DMARs are more expensive than the biologic when it comes to the patients. And I'm not talking about what the cost of the cost to society. At the end of the day, here's a take-home message. This is 2023 that you really need to think about. Are you doing evidence-based medicine? Patients who are coming to your office paying money for your best advice, or are they getting that best advice out of the door? Are you giving the same treatment that you would if somebody in your family or somebody that you would yourself? Don't worry about that. You talk about these uh, the cost of these drugs, give them the most uh, aggressive therapy and then one that has the best evidence base behind it. And in my practice, the evidence says the triple drug therapy. This is so 2008. We want to go to a more advanced therapy to get the disease close to low disease activity or remission in somebody who has active rheumatoid arthritis. Thank you very much. Well, very nice to have you join me. My name is Ian McInnes. I'm Vice Principal and Head of College of Medical, Veterinary and Life Sciences at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And it's my pleasure to be sharing a few thoughts today about the potential future that might await us in the management of people with rheumatoid arthritis. And particularly what I want to do is to think a little about the state of a patient. And I'll explain what I mean by that when we get there. But let's reflect, first of all, on what got us here. Because, you know, it's been a pretty remarkable decade or two for those of us working in the rheumatology field. We've had new medicines, the biologic revolution, and now targeted synthetic DMARDs, but also new strategies, treat early, treat to target, which are pretty much part of our daily vocabulary now, but were quite novel when they arrived. And despite that, we have unmet needs, don't we? We've I think still got an insufficient understanding of the underlying pathogenesis of our disease. We've not really adapted to the idea that the immune system that causes rheumatoid probably evolves over time. Preclinical RA is probably a little different from established disease, different once again from people who have difficult to treat disease. And that means we don't properly combine medicines. We don't use our drugs with the appropriate mode of action at the appropriate time. And that means in turn that our strategies are pretty crude. We're not choosing the right medicine for the right patient at the right time.
So how might we respond to this? Well, of course, one possibility is that we start to think about patients rather than as methotrexate inadequate responders or, or biologic inadequate responders. We actually think about how they really are. Think about them in an immunological state thinking about preclinical, established disease, difficult to treat patients in remission, and then even extending that to thinking about their extra articular state, are patients of high levels of comorbidity. So that, if you choose to really develop it as an idea, leads us to quite a different way of thinking about rheumatoid arthritis therapeutics. If you think about the current approach, we use a biology-led model. We make medicines because they have plausible targets. And that means, for example, that we have novel biologics, we have novel small molecule inhibitors, there are new JAK inhibitors coming, uh, there are BTK inhibitors being tested, and other kinase inhibitors, IRAC4 and beyond. There are new ways of using existing biologic targets, nanobodies potentially challenging full-blown antibodies for therapeutic utility. There are cellular therapies either giving mesenchymal stem cells or potentially amplifying regulatory cells using low-dose IL-2 or PD-1 agonists, and even biostimulation using the vagus nerve to trigger the immune system into a regulatory construct. But actually, those are, if you like, opportunistic. We develop molecules against pathways that mean something to us. I think the future is going to be deconstructing disease to understand the actual immunological state of each phase of disorder. The adaptive immune dominance of pre-RA, the myeloid stromal innate interactions that dominate established disease, and the as yet unknown factors that drive difficult to treat disease. And that will require us to reconsider the way tissue is deconstructed. And we can do that nowadays with really sophisticated single cell transcriptomics, the new emerging field of spatial biology, where we can actually understand what molecule is expressed in what cell and critically in what part of a synovial tissue. And then, of course, we can extend that to other tissues of interest, the vasculature, the adipose bed, and even the brain when we think about the comorbidities that commonly occur in our patients. And if you like, the end game of this future that we imagine based on actual tissue understanding of the state of our patient rather than serendipity of the biology that drugs afford to us, potentially could lead to us recharacterizing rheumatoid into different molecular signatures allowing us to understand the code, the molecular code for a disease, rather than the, the definition attributed by clinicians, classification, rheumatoid arthritis. That's an interesting possibility. I hope it's intriguing to you as it is to me. Thank you for your attention. Hello, dear colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to talk to you today from Berlin. My name is Gerd Wurmester. I'm a rheumatologist here in Berlin, Germany. We have a beautiful day today, and I would like to talk about the future of rheumatoid arthritis, which actually has been my field in particular uh, since I did my medical thesis. So uh, this is a disease, and I witnessed uh, how we learn to treat the disease, how our, how our understanding evolved, and I would have been asked to talk about the future. So what what will be important here? And I would like to start with the pathogenesis. I think one of the most intriguing aspects in uh, rheumatoid arthritis is, first of all, of course, the HLA association that we all 
know with DR4, uh, the, the shared epitope, and of course, notably also the ACPA, the anti-citronated protein antibodies, and also other uh, antibodies which are directed against post-translationally modified proteins. What is the link between these two will be of very uh, of great importance in, in the future. And we hope to learn a lot from the genetic susceptibility and from the occurrence of these uh, autoantibodies, which are directed, interestingly, against uh, proteins that we all have in our bodies. But why rheumatoid arthritis generates an immune response against this is uh, not known. And it will be the matter of intense research in the future. Moreover, we will learn a lot about the microbiome and, and, and its, its interaction with uh, the immune system in rheumatoid arthritis, probably with the innate immune system, the role of diet. And we shouldn't forget that rheumatoid arthritis is linked to smoking, to fine dust exposure, how this all pins together genetic susceptibility, environmental factors, the microbiome, would be very, very fascinating in the future. So in terms of clinical management, I think early recognition of rheumatoid arthritis is most important. We can do so much nowadays for our patients when we identify them earlier and use actually the window of opportunity for our patients. So we need to design strategies in order to, let's say, alert the public, alert uh, uh, the GPs, that rheumatoid arthritis basically, once it's occurring, is a medical emergency and needs our attention as soon as possible. I think this is a very important early arthritis clinic. This will be helpful here. Next, a very important question will be prediction of therapeutic success. So Mrs. Jones is sitting in front of me in need of a new treatment after she has unfortunately failed methotrexate what would be the most appropriate drug to take now? Would it be a TNF-blocking agent? Would it be an IL-6-directed agent? Would it be a JAK inhibitor? We, we, we don't know this currently uh, exactly because we don't have the appropriate biomarkers. And we all hope that looking into clinical aspects of the patient, the patient history, it may be also the genetic uh, backup and also uh, maybe cytokine expression profiles and others that we will be able in the future to really uh, uh, use the most appropriate treatment upfront in our patients. Maybe artificial intelligence can help us here integrating all of these findings into our approach so that ultimately the computer would say, well, Mrs. Jones, you should take this particular treatment because we have calculated that this would be the best possible approach. Obviously, um, uh, also coming to therapeutic aspects, it will be very important to use uh, the therapeutic armamentarium that we have currently very wisely. So it will be important to follow the treat-to-target concept, not that the patients wait on a treatment that is not or only moderately successful, but use uh, this approach, and this cannot, uh, cannot be re-emphasized too much because sometimes in daily clinical practice, we tend to deviate a little bit from it because we have time constraints and other factors. So this will be uh, very important. So 
strategies could be refined in order to treat patients as early as possible with the best possible treatment to reach the uh, uh, therapeutic targets. We need to take into account comorbidities, which I think we can do much better now, but uh, it will be primarily the task of the rheumatologist to identify these comorbidities and then jointly with the specialists or the, the GPs treat these uh, comorbidities appropriately in order to get also the best uh, medical outcome for our patients. So innovative approaches will be necessary as well. And here it could be a combination of therapies with, uh, let's say, a biologic, a small molecule that we would have in the future. It could also be a cell-directed treatment. We have learned a lot from patients with systemic autoimmune diseases like lupus, where stem cell therapy has been successful. Plasma cell-directed treatment has been successful. And recently, also CAR T-cell approaches have been successful. Obviously, in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, um, many of these approaches have not been tried yet. So because um, we feel that with the current therapeutic armamentarium, in many patients, we won't need it. However, what the patients truly want is a cure. And can we reach cures with our modern armamentarium? I'm afraid not, because we can really get the disease into remission in many, many uh, um, proportions of patients, but we still need our drugs in order to treat our patients uh, for sometimes even decades. So what our patients want actually is a cure. And we might read this, uh, reach this with the redirection of the immune system of a reset of the immune system, maybe based on findings that we have made in diseases like lupus, systemic cirrhosis using novel approaches. So I'm very, helpful, uh, very hopeful that using all these combinations, we will be able to treat rheumatoid arthritis, which was really a devastating disease when I started um, my rheumatology uh, career. Uh, and of course can be treated now much better, but we, there's still a lot of open questions to address. Nevertheless, I'm very optimistic that we will be able to treat this disease so much better in the future. So there is bright hope for our patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And with these words, I thank you very much for your attention and hope for the best for our patients. Thank you very much. Hello. My name is Robert Dandeveen. I'm a professor in rheumatology in the Netherlands, and I was chair of ULAR Standing Committee for the Quality of Care and have been leading five successive ULAR sets of recommendations on the management of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And that is actually what we are going to talk about, the steroid use in rheumatoid arthritis and the ULAR view. Long-term low-dose glucocorticoids are frequently used in rheumatoid arthritis, even despite the availability of many very successful biological or targeted synthetic DMARDs. And this is reflected by the fact that, that more than 40% of patients worldwide still use steroids in spite of the fact that they also use other effective DMARDs, biological and targeted synthetic DMARDs. But steroids have the connotation of long-term adverse events, high blood pressure, cardiovascular mobility, infections, osteoporosis, weight gain, cataract, you're very familiar with that. And recently, the ACR has recommended against the use of steroids in rheumatoid arthritis because of the fear for adverse events. 
Eula seems to be a little bit more lenient and allows low-dose bridging steroids, and low-dose is defined as 7.5 milligrams per day or lower, for the shortest possible time. So you may wonder why. I'll give you three different arguments. First of all, steroids are very effective drugs, especially as bridging therapy before a conventional synthetic or a biological DMARD will start working. And many trials have shown, in fact, that steroids decrease disease activity, inhibit radiographic progression, and perhaps especially increase the quality of life. So steroids may do a little bit more than only suppressing inflammation. Second argument, steroids in low dosages seem to be relatively safe. In fact, trials and meta-analyses of trials have suggested that some adverse events occur more frequently, even statistically significantly more frequently, but the real impact is rather low and rather manageable. At least in Europe, data have shown that at least 80% of the patients on steroid bridging therapy can stop the steroids between, let's say, three and six months. Third argument, observational studies seem to be more worrisome, but the interpretation of observational studies is importantly hampered by confounding or bias by indication. And that is the phenomenon that the worst RA patients with the worst prognosis anyway, will preferably be treated with long-term steroids. So in other words, Hular thinks it is the disease rather than the drug that, cause, that causes most harm in those studies. So to summarize, steroids are effective drugs in RA. Toxicity seems to be manageable, and a lot of presumed toxicity is due to methodological artifacts in studies. This does not mean that Euler propagates steroid use in general, but rather that at Euler we value the merits of short-term, lowest possible steroid dose, and that is why we still have steroids in our Euler recommendations. But shortest possible term of the shortest possible term of administration and the lowest possible dosage still remains key. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Brian England, rheumatologist at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And today we're going to discuss glucocorticoids in the 2021 ACR RA treatment guidelines. Let's start with what are these recommendations? Now there are three recommendations in the ACR RA treatment guidelines that pertain to glucocorticoids. Two of these recommendations are in the situation where we're newly starting disease-modifying therapy, and one of these recommendations is for patients who are already on disease-modifying therapy and glucocorticoids. But let's start at the beginning. Let's start when we're newly initiating disease-modifying therapies. There is a conditional recommendation to initiate disease-modifying therapies without short-term glucocorticoid use, with short-term being defined as less than three months. And there is a strong recommendation to initiate disease-modifying therapies without longer-term glucocorticoid use, with longer-term here being defined as greater than three months of planned glucocorticoid use. Now, for those patients who are already on disease-modifying therapies and glucocorticoids, and they need those glucocorticoids to stay at target, there's a conditional recommendation to optimize their disease-modifying regimen rather than continuing glucocorticoids to keep our patients at target. So how did we get to these recommendations? Let's look at both the benefits and the potential harms of glucocorticoids. So the benefits. Well, clearly glucocorticoids improve symptoms and disease activity 
as well as progress disease-modifying properties with slowing radiographic progression. What providers and patients perhaps like most about glucocorticoids is their quick uh, onset of action. The ultimate result for our patients is that it allows them to return back to activities, to help them care for themselves or care for others, and return to work more quickly. But there are also harms of glucocorticoids that have been well established. These include the impact on bone loss resulting in osteopenia and osteoporosis, and ultimately compression fractures and hip fractures. Glucocorticoids increase the risk of infection, hyperglycemia, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, mental health, and disrupt sleep. In fact, many of these toxicities uh, have a dose and duration dependent relationship with glucocorticoid use. But what's also emerged over the last few years in the literature is that we start to see these toxicities of glucocorticoids at even lower doses and shorter periods of use than we previously thought. Another consideration is that in the real world setting, it's often difficult for patients to get off steroids in a timely manner, resulting in prolonged use or prolonged higher dose use. So the voting panel and the patient panel considered these benefits and they considered these harms, and that ultimately is what led to those recommendations we just discussed. Now let's talk about how we might apply these, and let's go through a few different patient situations. Patient number one, this is a newly diagnosed RA patient, has four swollen joints, six tender joints, and a CDI score of 19. This patient makes near a full fist and has preserved grip strength. They're not having any difficulties caring for themselves or their family, and they work an office job that's currently not prohibited by their symptoms. Now, according to the guidelines, this is a patient that we would start disease-modifying therapy in without using glucocorticoids. Now, patient number two, this is a newly diagnosed RA patient. Now, this patient has 10 swollen joints and 10 tender joints. Their CDI score is 34. This patient can't make a full fist, and you can detect some reduced grip strength on your exam. They also tell you about some difficulty doing the buttons on their shirt or holding a utensil. And they work as a carpenter and currently are off work because of the difficulties from the disease. So this is a patient, according to the guidelines, where we would start disease-modifying therapy with low-dose short-term glucocorticoid use. So even though short-term glucocorticoid use is conditionally recommended against in the guidelines, this is the patient where the conditions you know, exist that it's better for this person to receive short-term glucocorticoid use. Now, our third patient is an RA patient who's transferring care. They were diagnosed about two years ago. Their disease-modifying regimen includes methotrexate 15 milligrams orally each week hydroxychloroquine 200 milligrams daily, and then they've also needed prednisone five milligrams daily to stay under good disease control. A few times they've tried to stop prednisone and each time they've had a flare up, most recently one year ago. Today on your exam, there's no swollen joints, there's no tender joints, their CDI scores too. So according to the guidelines, this is a patient where we want to taper their glucocorticoids off, but clearly they've demonstrated that that's been difficult to do without modifying their disease uh, modifying regimen. So this is a patient we want to optimize their DMARDs to allow us to taper them off of glucocorticoids. So in summary, there are three recommendations for glucocorticoids in the RA treatment guidelines from the ACR. Conditionally recommend against short-term glucocorticoids when we start disease-modifying therapy. Strong recommendation against longer-term glucocorticoids, meaning more than three months when initiating disease-modifying therapy 
and a conditional recommendation to optimize our DMARDs rather than stay on glucocorticoids to keep an RA patient at target. And the bottom line here is that steroids should not be the default in rheumatoid arthritis. We should not be systematically prescribing glucocorticoids to our RA patients, but rather we should be evaluating these patients carefully and finding the patient that really needs acute symptom relief as a bridge to, to their most effective disease-modifying regimen. In those situations, it's critical that when we use glucocorticoids, we use them at the lowest dose and for the shortest period of time necessary. And ultimately, our best long-term outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis, those result from us optimizing disease-modifying therapy and not over-relying on glucocorticoids. Thanks for joining us today for this discussion of glucocorticoids and the ACR-RA treatment guidelines. Hi, everyone. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the School of Medicine, Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Queensland in Australia. And today we're talking about some difficult issues in the management of rheumatoid arthritis. One of my pet areas to think about is the controversy between the ACR and the ULA recent updated recommendations for management when they're talking about how to use low-dose corticosteroid. The ACR chose not to recommend it, and the uh, ULA recommendations were to continue to recommend low-dose oral prednisone, although, to be fair, they don't, they don't specify whether it should be oral but it can be intramuscular, which is what we're trying to get to. Reason I bring it up is another presentation at ULAR in Milan by Croson and his colleagues, and they looked at the RA population in two cohorts, one from 1999 to 2008 and another from 2009 to 2020, and they looked to see how we rheumatologists have been using steroids in our RA populations. And guess what? We're still using them, and we're using them more than we used to use them, even though we have a tremendous array of very effective therapies that are steroid sparers, so that 71% of patients are started on steroids. They're usually started orally. These people have more comorbidities, are more likely to be on a biologic at the end of 12 months. But even though the guidelines in EULA say off by three months, I've always found it very difficult to get people off the last few milligrams of prednisone. And I've also found that occasionally, more than I'd like, once the person has the bottle of prednisone in their hand, they take a fistful when they're sore, then stop when they're feeling well, they're good for a week, then they flare, and then they're on the roller coaster. And it's very hard to control their disease while they continue to do that. The point that this particular poster made was that the more likely to start steroid if you're older, you're uh, less likely to come off if you're older. Smokers are also much less likely to discontinue steroids. But the key point was 30% of patients are still on glucocorticoids at two years, exactly the same as the catch cohort from Canada that was a paper from many years ago. And we're now seeing lots of publications. Martin Bors has recently published the glorious study. And there's another recent publication, the Annals of Internal Medicine, this month, talking about 
Firstly, the annals said that low-dose steroids puts on 1.1 kilos over a year over a year or two, and it, it also talked about um, increase in minor increases in blood pressure, which may well have relevance over time. And Martin Bors is saying how safe it is to use steroids in that population, even though there was more osteoporotic fractures, there was uh, more people hospitalized with infections, et cetera, et cetera. So the bottom line is I'm very keen to use as bridging therapy corticosteroids, but intra-articular or injected rather than commence low-dose oral. What do you think? The evidence is out there on the efficacy of um, intramuscular and intraarticular steroid injection, and the evidence is out there of how difficult it is to get some patients off their low-dose steroid and the long-term uh, effects of steroid use, driving weight gain, blood pressure, infection in particular, fatty liver, metabolic syndrome, premature atherosclerosis, etc. Thanks for your attention. Hi, this is Kevin Winthrop, Professor of Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology here at Oregon Health Science University in Portland, Oregon. Jack uh, asked me to do just a real quick summary of a couple of vaccines in the context of the difficult decisions in rheumatology series. Uh, wanted me to comment on first, you know, shingles prevention and um, Shingrix, the, the current vaccine. Uh, there are not a lot of difficult decisions here. I mean, the decision to whether or not someone should get Shingrix is, is very clear. ACR guidance we just released this last year. I was on the committee. I mean, we weighed in very firmly like, hey, if you're 18 and above and immunosuppressed, you should be vaccinated with Shingrix. I think the difficult decisions really come down to how to do it. And unfortunately, we have a tremendous lack of data. Um and this is with regards to DMAR management. I, I think, you know, if you extrapolate from influenza and COVID-19 vaccines, and you look at the couple presentations, there's been at ULAR and ACR in the last year or two, none of which are published, by the way. But there is suggestion that, uh, you know, jack, jack inhibitors or, you know, maybe just rheumatologist patients in general have diminished responses this vaccine. And I, I would argue, yes, I'm sure rheumatology patients and particularly RA patients have diminished vaccine responses. That's pretty much true of any vaccine. Uh, but some DMARs may, may make that more marked. Um, I think, you know, we presented a UR last year, UPA, and UPA methotrexate, pretty much everyone was on background methotrexate. And only about two-thirds of patients had, you know, what we call satisfactory cell-mediated responses, which you know, in the general population, that's pretty close to, you know, 95, 100%. So um, I would suspect that, uh, you know, if I had a patient coming in, I, I would suspect their DMARDs, some of them may diminish responses. How that translates to diminished efficacy, I don't know. Jeff Curtis and I are doing a big study right now trying to sort this out. It's going to take a couple of years. Other people are looking at it. But I, I do think uh, I do think probably if I had a patient now coming in, in fact, I did today, I just got home from clinic. You know, I'd stopped their methotrexate for, you know, at least a week, one to two weeks after, at the time of vaccination. Most people functionally end up in the seven to 10 day range, you know, based on where they are when they come in, something like that. But I, I would, and I'd consider stopping their jack for a week, and I'd probably skip a dose of ABBA. I mean, these are things that, again, extrapolate from our COVID data and the guidance around COVID vaccine 
Uh, and we don't have data specific to Shingrix yet, at least not that's been published, but I, I do think that's the way it's looking. But we do need better studies to like figure out how to optimize the immunogenicity and then the long-term efficacy of that big vaccine. I will say the long-term efficacy data was just published in the general population. It looks phenomenal. Uh, the immunogenicity really holds up. I mean, it was almost, it barely dropped at all for both humoral and cell mediated responses over 10 years. There was some diminishment in, in efficacy. It went from like 95%-ish to 78%-ish or 75%-ish. So it dropped a little bit. I mean, maybe that argues that people should be getting boosters at year 10 or something, but we'll sort that out later. Um, but still 73, 75% of 10 years is, is pretty darn good for maintenance of efficacy. So I do think this vaccine will help with patients. I would give it, I think about holding some DMARDs at the time of vaccination. And, you know, we'll sort out hopefully with some of our studies about when to give a booster and how to, how to further hone this management. The last comment is about RSV vaccine. Um, all my patients are asking, some of yours I'm sure are as well. There's two new vaccines, Pfizer and GSK, both had approved products in the last few months. There are ACIPCC recommendations out about using them in patients over 60 and above with quote unquote shared decision-making. I love that term. Anyway, we should always be shared decision-making. I think that's what we've always been doing as doctors, but now we have this term that gets applied to everything, particularly when we don't want to issue a firm recommendation. So there's no firm recommendation. However, if you look at the data in patients who are 65 and up, particularly particularly those with comorbidities, chronic heart and lung disease, um, there, there isn't any data specific to rheumatology that I'm aware of. Maybe it's out there. I haven't seen it. Um, speaking to increased risk associated with rheumatic diseases or various forms of DMARD immunosuppression. But there certainly is a lot of data in other immunosuppressive settings and really just this comorbidity type um, setting. And patients with a variety of these problems are definitely higher risk. And they're in that vaccine recommendation category of shared decision-making. So, I, I mean, I had two patients today. They're above 60. They have chronic lung disease. I, I'm going to vaccinate them. And I, I don't think it matters which vaccine. They both look very similar in terms of their efficacy and phase three trials in terms of their safety. Um, they look quite good. There was a couple rare, like one in 10,000 type uh, neurologic events like Guillain-Barre or um, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. These are rare vaccine type events. Um, they did occur in some of the patients and patients who got vaccinated uh, concomitantly with flu and the RSV vaccine. So for now, my recommendation would be to keep them separate. I like to keep vaccines separate anyway. I mean, I know we do these studies to make sure it's okay to do them together. And I think that's good to do, but I generally, tend to like to use both my arms. And if I get two vaccines, I can't use both my arms. So I tend to keep them separate. But uh, I think for the RSV vaccine, I would definitely do it alone for now. But I would recommend it based on the data. Um, and it looks, again, to be probably a one-shot deal. There's no recommendations in terms of boosters yet. The GSK program actually re-randomized people to get a booster at year one versus not. And the people who didn't get a booster were at the same efficacy level as the people who did. So there's really no benefit to a year one booster. So for now, these are one-shot deals with boosters two years or later. 
Um, we'll have to see how the data shakes out. So that's all I'll say, Jack, I hope you're well. And I hope that helps solve some problems in this difficult space. And uh, thanks very much and carry on. Cheers.